The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and 107.7 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's, as always, been a very busy week in technology. Apple Silicon has arrived. Bye-bye, Intel. Hello, Apple chips. <laughs> and the tip of the week is rechargeable batteries. And I'm th- I've got a story why I needed them so badly. Uh-huh. And this week, uh, there's a uh, new website that's really hit the news, Parler. It's the conservative Twitter feed after all of this election election controversy. Now there's another another Twitter showing up to handle everyone. SpaceX is going to launch tomorrow their uh, Crew Dragon. They're going to have four astronauts aboard, three from the U.S. and uh, one from Japan. And the World Economic Forum has been looking at the skills that people need going in the going into the future, and uh, it's really more toward the soft skill side, what's important. I thought I'm going to talk about that quite a bit. And the deal of the week, Zoom is going to drop their 40-minute limit for Thanksgiving calls. This week, we're going to feature Carl Heinz Brandenburg. He is the father of the MP3 audio file compression format. And I dig his concerto. Yes, and his concerto is excellent. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Donna in Pittsburgh. Dear Tech Talk, last week I sent a response uh, to an email, and it included the entire chain of emails that were linked to it. Now, some of these emails were quite embarrassing because <laughs> they were saying things about the person I was emailing to. Is there any way to simply reply to a single email and not have the entire chain included in the response? By the way, I'm using an iPhone, the iPhone email client. Love the podcast, Donna in Pittsburgh. Well, Donna, this is a big problem. You might have uh, somebody send you an email, three or four people comment on it. Not all the comments are positive to the original email sender. And then you want to respond to the original email sender. You want to be certain not to include all of that chain of emails. And actually, on the iPhone, it's, it's, it's a little bit tricky to do that. Because if you simply, on the top of the email, you've got reply or reply all. If you use any one of those, you will send the entire chain. There's no other way to do it. Mm-hmm. They don't let you choose just to select the email. But here's the trick, Donna. Go to the actual email that you want to respond to, and instead of using one of the top buttons, pull the email to the side, to the left, 
and there will be another line of buttons, reply, reply all. If you click reply all on that button, you'll only send the email in question and not the entire email ah. chain. That's kind of a trick. It is. And, and you know, I, I, I had to, uh, I had to work to discover this cause I did have similar problems where I had only wanted to send one email with my iPhone. I didn't want to send the whole chain. And I had to do a little bit of investigation to find that it's, uh, it's not really very obvious where it is. We got an email from Chuck in Baltimore, dear doc and Jim. Since I switched from Internet Explorer to Google Chrome, I can't read any RSS feeds. That's uh, RSS stands for really simple syndication. It's used for podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's used for blogs. It's a, it's a, it's an easy way Streaming to syndicate audio. information. All I see is gibberish and it looks like computer code. I really like Chrome, but I'd like to be able to read the RSS feeds, you know, easily. Well, uh, Chuck, the uh, the RSS feed for a podcast is written in XML, extendable markup language, and you've got and you've got basically um, uh, every piece of text is is uh, is between two RS uh, t between two XML um, declarations, and um, and it does look a little bit like computer code. Every Saturday, I write the XML uh, XML file for the Tech Talk podcast, so we upload it. So I, I know exactly what it looks like because I create it every weekend. The good news is that you can get an extension for Google Chrome. It turns out that Google made the choice not to support RSS feeds uh, by default, and they make you uh, they make you actually install an extension. The good news is Google has an extension. They have the RSS subscription extension by Google. RSS subscription extension by Google. It's free. Simply go to the chrome.google.com uh, or else you can just uh, Google it, as they say. And then when you bring up the page for RSS subscription extension, there will be a button that says add to Chrome. Click on that and add it to Chrome. And as soon as you do that, uh, as soon as you go to an RSS feed, uh, the extension will be activated and you'll see a proper readout of that. It works like a charm and best of luck with that. It's, uh, and I wish that Google, uh, that Google would just make RSS feeds extensions supported by default. Be a much better idea. Uh, we got an email from John in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, my laptop is a 13-inch screen, and I'd like to have a much bigger screen to use when I'm watching Netflix. I found out my cousin's got a new 50-inch flat screen that he wants to get rid of. He'll sell it to me for $60. Can I attach this to my uh, to my laptop? Well, John, yeah, you can attach it to the laptop. You can, uh, you know, the HDMI port on the computer, just plug it into the HDMI port on your computer. And you can use either screen mirroring or screen extension. And then what's on the screen in your laptop will be seen directly on, uh, on the television set. So if you'd watch, uh, say, a Netflix movie using a Netflix client on your laptop, it will just, it'll just be redirected to the television. And all of the, uh, if you do screen mirroring, every, all the sound and video for the, for the Netflix will come directly out on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on your television set. Now, on the other hand, uh, most of these new TVs are smart TVs. Uh, you may be able to download a Netflix client directly within the TV. You don't have to use your laptop at all. Now, I, I would not use a big screen TV as my computer monitor. It's just 
too unwieldy. I think it's okay for watching movies, but that should work. And for 60 bucks, a 50-inch TV is certainly a good deal. We got an email from uh, Howard in Washington, D.C. Dear Doc and Jim, I've forgotten some of my passwords. Now, my, I know that my browsers store them somewhere. How can I view these passwords uh, on my Internet Explorer or, or my Chrome browser? Thanks for your help, Howard in Washington, D.C. Well, Howard, uh, the autosave password feature in, in web browsers is pretty convenient. You go to a website. It says you want to save it, and you say yes, and and you can save it there. Then then next time you go back to the website, you don't have to enter your password. It'll just log you in automatically. Well, those passwords, in fact, are stored within the browser, and you can see them if you want. So, like in the case of Internet Explorer, click on the, uh, the for Internet Explorer, click on uh, the Windows key on your laptop and launch the Start menu, and then click on Control Panel. Just put in control panel, and you'll bring up the control panel. In the control panel, uh, look for credential manager, and then select web credentials. When you click on web credentials, you'll see a whole list of websites, and you simply can click on the button that says view when you want to view the password, and they're all there. It's really interesting. Now, in the case of Google, Google Chrome, click on the control panel on Google Chrome, Click on Settings, show Advanced Settings, scroll down till you find Passwords, and then click on Manage Passwords. You'll see a list of saved passwords along with username, and then you can simply click on the account, and then you can see what the password looks like. you got similar deals on Mozilla, Firefox. All of the, um, all the browsers have a way to manage the passwords and look them up. Good luck with your password recovery. We got an email from Tung in Cleveland. Dear Doc and Jim, I've heard that Facebook tracks the websites I visit, even if I am not logged into Facebook. I know it must be true because I receive ads for products that I've viewed on other sites, and I get those ads while I'm in Facebook. How can I find out how much Facebook knows about me and then possibly delete all that information? Tong in Cleveland. Well, many of the companies that you do business with uh, share your activity on their websites with Facebook. I mean, they make money out of the deal. Now, this data sharing scheme is called off-book, off-Facebook activity, off-Facebook activity. Personally, I don't like companies that, that I do business with to share information about me with a third party. Now, if you've logged into a, to a, to a website and you have used your Facebook credentials to, to create your account, you've given them permission to send all your data to Facebook. But what I'm talking about are cases where you didn't do that. You set up your own account there. You didn't use Facebook credentials, and yet Facebook still has it. Now, if you want to check out the goods that they've got on you, uh, on your web browser, log into your Facebook account, click the down arrow located on the right side of the blue bar at the top of the Facebook window. Then, you know, that drop, that drop down a window. Click on Settings. Then click on Your Facebook Information. It's located in the left-hand column. Then click on Off Facebook Activity. And you'll see a row of icons that's located in the Off Facebook Activity. You should now see all the companies that have shared information with you. I'm telling you, Tung, I went to that. I had not looked at that, to tell you. I, I went to that this morning 
there are literally hundreds of websites that I've been to that Facebook had the information on. And these are ones I didn't set up any account for. I mean, I, I, I was amazed at how much stuff Facebook manages to scarf up and collect and use on you. Now, what you can do, you can, you can delete all of that. It'll give you a choice. You can say delete all that information and you can delete it. You can also, uh, basically, you click on clear history to delete everything. Now, what that does, though, if you've created an account with a Facebook credential, that means that that account is going to have to be recreated or you'll have to log in again with your Facebook credential. It won't automatically log in for you. And now what I also did, because I just didn't like all that creepy data collection, I clicked on manage future activity in the right column, and I, and I, told, and I told Facebook to prevent Facebook from collecting third-party info on me in the future. So now I won't have any off Facebook activity logged. Now the process is similar for the mobile device, but I recommend you do that. I don't like all that information out there. We got an email from Alice in Alexandria. Dear Doc and Jim, I've become a Zoom employee and now I'm on Zoom calls several times a day and I'm having problems with my video. I'm using my laptop camera and the angle of the picture is is not very flattering. It's kind of low and, and everything. Now, I've tried to prop up my laptop with books. I'm considering getting another USB webcam. But what's your opinion about this? Well, I'll tell you, Alice, I've been through this Zoom drill. I mean, I had the same problem with my laptop. The angle was wrong, and so I was like propping up my laptop, trying to get it right. I was scotch-shaping it at the table, putting books under it. Then I finally bought a... Um, an HD camera that plugged into the USB port and it just sits on the top of the camera and I could point it in any direction I wanted. I got that. Uh, I got them. I got the, uh, I got the, uh, a Gesma USB webcam with microphone, which was HD from Amazon for 34 99. Uh, and that worked great, but I found something even better. Did you now? Yes. I found something even better. I found a stand for my laptop. And I can, it's adjustable. I put it on the stand. I can set the angle. It's, it's actually fantastic. I love this stand. It's, it's the Bezign B-E-S-I-G-N-L-S aluminum laptop stand. On Amazon, it's $27. And I can sit and adjust. In fact, I'm using it right now while I'm doing Tech Talk because the, the laptop is kind of lifted up. The screen is pointed at me. And my papers can now go underneath the laptop. It gives me more desk space. So that stand is a better option and it's super stable uh, and um, it's only $27. That's the Bazine LS aluminum laptop stand. And so listen, best of luck with your Zoom calls because that is the new normal. Now, uh, oh, there's one more thing I should say about Zoom calls. If set up the Zoom so that you've got a plain background in the back, like, like, a, like a green screen, and then you can put in backgrounds. Uh-huh. Uh, behind you. So like last week, uh, I did all my Zoom calls with a, uh, with a background of a piazza in Florence that I'd been there a few years ago. So it was like I was sitting in Florence at a little cafe on my Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, did enjoy, I did enjoy doing this. You can pick any background, but, but you've got to get a uh, uh, kind of a green screen. You can't have a lot of clutter in your background. Now, I did try this on Google Rooms with the background, and I had a cluttered background, 
And somehow Google Rooms has got a better video subtraction algorithm. So even without a green screen, it you can you can have a background photo on on Google Rooms and it works really well. That was kind of a, a surprise to me. We got an email from Doug in Parsons. I read an article suggesting that everybody needs to keep software, the software on their smartphones up to date. Uh, but uh, but also I've heard that you got to be careful not to brick your iPhone. Yeah. Brick your phone while updating it. Can you tell me what this bricking means? I have no idea. Well, uh, Doug, just like any regular computer, the CPU in your mobile device must have some kind of code to execute in order to complete the tasks. Now, this body of code is called the firmware, and it's stored in the non-volatile flash memory. That means it's permanently stored in the flash memory. Now, the process of updating the firmware in a device basically replaces the existing code with the new version. The problem is that if something goes wrong, like you... Uh, um, run out of power on your iPhone or you turn off your laptop and you've partially updated the firmware, uh, then your device cannot reboot because it doesn't have a complete set of firmware and that's called bricking it. It means it won't even turn on. So um, it won't work anymore and the only way to fix it is to basically send it back to the manufacturer and they will manually install replacement firmware. But it'll cost you, right? It'll cost you something, yeah. It'll cost you something. That's exactly right. So so whenever you're updating the firmware in your device, make certain that you are not going to power down. You've got plenty of power. Me, I'd, I'd recommend that you be plugged in. I know when uh, when you update your firmware on a, on a cell phone, they won't do it if the battery level is below 50% mm. uh, because they want to make certain you can finish the job. Yeah. And also make certain you've got the right firmware version if you install the wrong firmware version on the device you may brick it so you just want to be be careful whenever you're dealing with firmware and you know you know cross the t's and dot the i's get the right firmware version and make certain you can complete the process properly and then you won't brick your device listen we love your emails Do indeed. email us at tech talk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can you're listening to tech talk radio this is federal news network 1500 am 1035 fm hd2 1039 fm hd2 southwest of dc now on 1077 fm hd2 and in loudon county on 104.5 fm if it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Carl Heinz Brandenburg. Carl Heinz Brandenburg is a German electrical engineer and mathematician, and he's best known as father of MP3 audio compression. Now, Carl Heinz Brandenburg was born June 20th, 1954 in Erlangen, Bavaria, West Germany. He received a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering in 1980 and a Master's in Mathematics in 1982 from Erlangen University. In 1989, he got his PhD in electrical engineering from the Friedrich Alexander University, and he did his research on digital audio coding and perceptual measurement techniques. And I'll explain what all of that means. Okay. His PhD advisor was Professor Dieter Zeitzer, an expert in psychoacoustics. Now, it turns out Let's talk about psychoacoustics, because this is the heart of the whole MP3 items. It turns out that the human auditory system is not an instrument that hears all frequencies in a given environment, like a microphone does. What we hear is not an accurate representation of reality, but only those sounds that the brain, over the course of evolution, has determined are the most important sounds. Therefore, we don't hear some sounds and other sounds we hear. That's called psychoacoustics, that study of psychoacoustics. Now, in the early 1980s, Seitzer had a dream. It was a pet project. He called it his digital jukebox. He envisioned a system where people could hear CD music on demand over an ISDN, internet connection. So you'd have CDs playing, and you could call them, and you could listen to CD music on demand. Now, the problem was that ISDN networks had an order of magnitude download speed that was too slow, by an order of magnitude, in order to hear full CD quality. Because full CD quality, you're sampling the, the signal 44,000 times a second. Each sample, you're, you're collecting 16 bits, and you've got two channels. So each second, you're generating um, a lot of bits. And it's just too many bits to to be able to be downloaded on the ISDN line. So it turns out to be able to download a song over ISDN without it buffering, you'd have to compress the CD video by 12 to one. Mm. You'd have to have a 12 to one compression of the audio signal in order to bring it, in order to make it work. And you'd have to bring it back down to a bit rate of 128 kilobits per second. Now he applied for a patent on his digital jukebox uh, it's, you know, and the judge said, I'm not going to give it to you because this is an impossible dream. You are never, ever going to be able to download a CD 
over an ISDN line. Now, it's too bad he didn't actually get the patent for the digital jukebox because in the end, that was what Apple iTunes became, a digital jukebox. And he could have made lots of money on royalties to Apple, but he didn't get his patent. So what he did, after the judge said that his dream was impossible, and you don't tell a German professor that their technical dream is impossible, he decided <laughs> to get one of his graduate students to prove that it wasn't impossible. So he said, Carl Heinz, I got this project for you. We've got to find a way to compress, to prove that I can compress a, a CD audio file by, by 12 to 1 so that my patent will go through. Well, Carl Heinz looked at this thing and he says, well, I don't know. This thing looks a little like impossible. It's like an impossible. <laughs> but look, I'm working on my PhD. I'm going to make the professor happy. I'm just going to go ahead and work on it. And when I prove that it can't be done, I'll write my dissertation to get my PhD. Why not? So he started working on it. He's skeptical at first. And as he got into it, he began to think, well, maybe this is possible. So what this was the key that he was doing. He, he was able to combine previous work on speech coding with some of the insights that Seitzer had and that others discovered in the field of psychoacoustics. And he began to make real headway. So the main trick was compressing audio files in a way that the human ear would not hear a difference. So, for instance, if there are two notes that are, that are, that are uh, very close to each other, you don't hear two notes. You hear one note. Mm -hmm. You only hear one note if they're very close together. Or if, a, if you get a huge cymbal clashing in the, uh, in the music, for momentarily after that cymbal clashes, all you hear is the cymbal and all of the other music is not even heard. You don't even hear it. So what he started doing, he started saying, look, I'm going to start removing information from the audio file that the human ear doesn't pick up anyway. So he started doing that. And then he combined that with normal compression techniques. And by doing that, he was able to actually get a 12 to one compression ratio. So you see the MP3 method that he developed, he wasn't actually, um, he, was, he was actually making it so it sounds good but it's not lossless compression. It's lossy compression. But it, so it's if, not the complete I've, piece of music. And I've noticed music. this. If you're an audiophile, there's some audiophiles that got extremely good audio ability. Mm -hmm. They can hear the difference between a CD and an MP3 file because there is a difference. But for most of us guys, you can't you hear the know. difference. Nope. Can you hear? Can you hear a difference, Jim? No, I can't. I but I, I have messed up ears, and I've been wearing headphones my entire life, so that doesn't help either. Yeah, and so now this, so what he would do, uh, this was kind of a complicated thing. He would actually tweak an algorithm that would like remove information, and then he would play it again, and and he developed an algorithm that would you would play a song into it, and it would uh, remove the information that the that the ear couldn't hear, and then he would run it back through again and remove more information. Now the problem is when he was working on his PhD, he he was on a very low budget project. So he could only get enough computer time to run 20 seconds of music at any one time. And of course, th that was in the days when they had 3.5 inch floppy disks. I mean, there wasn't a lot of memory out there that was available. Mm -hmm. So he worked on this thing. 
He tested it at algorithms on 30 or 40 CDs, and he says, man, this works just great. <laughs> I'm really on to something. And then, and then Carl Heinz came up against his greatest nemesis in the name of Suzanne Vega. Uh-huh. He played Suzanne Vega's CD, Tom's Diner, and she sounded terrible. Her audio was terrible. She's got kind of a soprano staccato voice that his algorithms just didn't work on. And it turned out he discovered that many audiophiles use that song to test their high-end speakers. So she was his great nemesis, and he worked to tweak it to make her sound good. What what, what does she sound like in this? Well, uh, in this, uh, Let's play it. We have it here. Okay. One of the worst songs ever. Yeah. <laughs> this is from the 80s, by the way. Yeah. She starts singing oh, the, here in a minute. I promise. Okay, let's go. Let's let's hear some words out of this thing. Yeah, it's coming. I think it's coming. Should be right about <laughs> now. Oh my goodness. Let's skip ahead a little bit here. Here we go. Okay. It's always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter to the woman who has come in. She is shaking. So there you go. Yeah. So the reason this was so difficult to compress, it's staccato, a yeah. lot of on and offs. It's it's uh, soprano, and it also has that beating drum in the back. And so it just turned out that all of his tweaks just failed on this. So he went through, and he spent making hundreds of tweaks to finally get Suzanne Vega right. Well, and he perfected his algorithm. <laughs> getting the song right started with writing it. So this was—I think this might have been her second biggest hit. She didn't have many hits back in the '80s, but this was. Was this, a, was this a hit, Jim? This was a hit. Well, really? Believe it or not, I remember hearing this on on, as we used to call it, terrestrial radio. <laughs> Let's see here. I'm looking her up on the on on the Wikipedia, and uh, you keep talking. Let me see if I can figure out where okay. this song so finished. They, so then. He finished his dissertation after he finally got his compression algorithm to work on Suzanne Vega. And he wrote uh, the basic mathematics that was the basis of the MP, uh, MP, uh, three, um, MP3 uh, uh, audio file compression. And he also wrote uh, advanced audio coding methodology for another way to encode if it wasn't as lossy. Now, after he finished his dissertation, there was a problem. There was another group called Music Cam, and they had developed compression algorithms. And they were in a big competition over who would get their compression algorithms accepted, because if your compression algorithm is accepted by industry, you're gonna make a lot of royalties. So they had a big negotiation, and Music Cam changed their name to Motion Picture Experts Group, MPEG. And what they did, they created MPEG, uh, MPEG-1, layer one was for compressing video, MPEG layer two was for compressing audio using their methods. And they said, and they said those are gonna be used for the motion picture industry. And they said this MPEG-1 layer three is gonna be Carl Heinz's technique, but we're not gonna sign anybody to use it, we're just gonna make it a standard. So 
he negotiated with them, and it looked like actually he'd lost the negotiation because he had a standard that wasn't assigned to anything. And so what happened, though, after that, and he, uh, he, he, eventually, um, he eventually went back to the University of Erlanga in 1993, and he, was head, and he was head of the audio multimedia department. And at that time, in 95, he asked his team to develop software for a free MP3 player that could run on Windows. This was back in, uh, in 95, June of 95, March or June of 95. So they wrote a, a free MP3 player that could run on Windows. And this was just at the time when people had internet and people were, you know, wanted to listen to a lot of audio over the internet. And the MP3 file compression was the right technology at the right time because you could download an MP3, you could listen to an MP3 file, and you wouldn't have to buffer it. It matched the bandwidth of the available internet, and everybody used the MP3. And the MP3 came the de facto standard for all internet audio. And uh, in fact, you know, I, you know, Tech Talk each day we, we we upload the file and we make it as an we make it as an MP3 file. Mm -hmm. Now. The, like the Tech Talk file, though, we, it's, 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 it's recorded off the air at 128 kilobits per second. We downsample it to 32 kilobits per second because we've got a lot of listeners in developing countries that just have dial-in. And at, and at, 32, mega, at th 32 kilobits per second, they can listen to the stream without buffering, even on a dial-up connection. So, and it's good, enough for, it's good enough for audio. Now, it turned out that that second compression algorithm that he developed for his dissertation, AAC, Advanced Audio Compression, that is the compression algorithm that Steve Jobs selected for Apple iTunes. So on Apple iTunes, it's not MP3 compression, it's Advanced Audio Compression, which is the second compression technique that he developed. It's not as lossy, and therefore it doesn't compress as far as MP3. Now, it, uh, it you know, he began, after that, he became director of the Fraunhofer Institute for Digital Media. He's a fellow of the Audio Engineers Society, and he's also uh, head of the AES Standards Committee for Audio Delivery Systems. He's been granted over 27 patents. Now, okay, let's talk about royalties. Okay. Okay, he was working for the Fraunhofer Institute when he actually developed all of these things, and um, the royalties are paid to the Fraunhofer Institute. And Brandenburg and his team get a small stipend, a small percentage of that, but not that much. So in the end, he didn't make that much money for the big MP3. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Carl Heinz Brandenburg, the father of the MP3. And here's more than you wanted to know about Suzanne Vega. Tom's Diner peaked at number seven on the Billboard charts 30 years ago, back in October of 1990. As we go out the commercial, Doc... We're going to play her hit. This was her biggest hit. I think Tom's Diner was probably the um, uh, the second biggest hit. Luca, which I'm about to play, has uh, peaked at number three on the Billboard charts back in 1987. Spent 21 weeks on the chart. This is Luca. Where, yeah, Luca from Suzanne Vega on Tech Talk. <laughs> Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2. And also on 103.9 FM HD2 in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM and now southwest of D.C. 107.7 FM HD2.
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, uh, yes, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I just do applaud. I do love the virtual audience applauding yes. every Saturday. Yes. You can't get that- sick from the virtual audience. I know, that's exactly right. We don't can't give them popcorn, nothing like that anymore. No, it's but, cheaper but, for but, you, well, too, right? We'll get back to that. Yeah. Now, this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airways. And earlier, and if and what we do, we assess whether our audience has learned anything with a pop quiz. Earlier in the show, I talked about Carl Heinz Brandenburg. Uh, he actually has a PhD, so we could call him Dr. Brandenburg. We could. He is father of the MP3, and as he was perfecting the MP3 and deciding how to adjust it so that he could have uh, lossy compression to get him 12 to 1. He successfully did it on 30 or 40 CDs, and he came to a huge roadblock. And this particular singer and her song, he had trouble getting it right. And he used that song to, to do the final tweaking on the MP3 algorithm. All right. What your was that to, song your that was a major barrier? Okay, try, try ask the question again because Mr. Big Voice jumped the gun. Okay, what was... What was the song that was very difficult for Carl Heinz Brandenburg to actually compress because he had to tweak his algorithms further? It was his biggest roadblock. Okay. Now's your chance to show us just how smart you are. If you don't know what to do by now, I can't help you. If you're calling from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're knee-deep in fish scales, oyster shells, and bottom leaves, east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're listening to an MP3 of Bach in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. 
anyone else, anywhere else can give us a call on the international line. Thanks to Lysol Wipes, now with 14% fewer pathogens. 8779-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. You know, the Bach Canada thing was kind of a, uh, a Brandenburg, for those who didn't oh, get it. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I guess it was yeah. too deep. Yeah, but Sorry. I think it makes me, I, I understand it. Okay. Now, let's talk about the deal of the week. Zoom is going to drop the 40-minute time limit on Thanksgiving. Now, they'll lift their 40-minute time limit on free video chats on Thanksgiving Day to make it easier to serve a virtual Thanksgiving dinner. Ah. Now, the 40-minute limit's been one of the key restrictions of Zoom's basic plan throughout the pandemic, and it forces people to start their chat after the time limit expires, restart their chat if they want to go on. Now, many competitors have imposed similar restrictions, like uh, uh, we have here um, Google Meet has a 60-minute time limit. Cisco WebEx has a 50-minute time limit for the free tier. But Zoom, in, in the end, just won the whole video con conferencing contest. They're the most popular during the pandemic. Now, this is only a temporary removal that goes from midnight on Thanksgiving Day, November 26th, to 6 a.m. on November 27th. Wow. Midnight on Thanksgiving Day to 6 a.m. on November 27th. That must be, it should be midnight the night before Thanksgiving, shouldn't it? I would think so, yeah. I must have a typo. It must be midnight it's got, the night you, before you be Thanksgiving. Right. Yeah. To 6 a.m. on the day after or Thanksgiving. Or 12.01 so, a.m. on Thanksgiving. So if COVID is holding your Thanksgiving celebration hostage, you can yeah. zoom it. Gotcha. Um, you know, that's that's. I wonder what kind of records they're going to break, Doc, because you know it's it's going to be pretty highly used, don't you think? I think it's going to be used a lot. Yeah. I mean, I know we 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 do a lot of zooming, and uh, you know everybody really likes it. Now at Stratford, we've got the we we have a paid tier, so I don't have the sixty. I don't have the forty minute limit, but the free tier is a good deal. Yeah, forty minutes. Uh, now the only now you can't store your Zoom call to the cloud, but you can store it on your computer yep. with with the free tier. It's actually a good service. All right, let's go to the phones. We're going to play the pop quiz. Let's go to line one. This is Ken calling from Laurel. Ken, good morning, sir. Oops, wait a minute. I did this wrong. Ken, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, Ken. Uh, Doctor Shirts, ask the question, please. Early in the show, I talked about Carl Heinz Brandenburg, father of the MP3. What song was his nemesis? when he's trying to treat the algorithm. Tom Steiner. That is correct. Very correct. good, Ken. Hang on a second. We're going to send you back to Andrew. He will take your information and send you out the prize. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, southwest of D.C. now on 1077 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. You know, the colder it gets, that door's only going to get squeakier. It's only going to get stickier as, the, as we get into the cold weather. Mm -hmm. But you know, this week, sitting down in the bunker, I've started thinking about standards organizations in America. I started thinking about this because we talked about the MP3 standard. They actually standardized it, uh, and it became a de facto worldwide standard. And the U.S. has a fantastic standards, standards infrastructure, and um, I really uh, thought I would talk about it a bit. Like if you go to Europe, all the standards are being run by the governments, like the International Standards Organization, ISO. It's basically a government operation. And so in the rest of the world, the standard organizations are bureaucratic, slow, not adaptive to new technology. But in the U.S., we created a great standards infrastructure. And the reason it's so good, the federal government doesn't run it. Now, <laughs> it's the first thing. The standards are strictly voluntary, and they're run by the private sector. Now, the federal government participates as a stakeholder, as one of the many users of the standard, but they don't drive the standards process. That's the first unique standards characteristic in the United States. Secondly, the U.S. system is tremendously diverse. We don't have one giant standard organization with a thousand divisions, no. We actually have 600 organizations and consortia that develop standards. The result is, part, the resu as a result, all the standards are basically partitioned to various specialty groups. And so we have many, many specialized U.S. standards developing organizations called SDOs, standard developing organizations. And that gives us balance. It also means we can move quickly. Like, uh, for instance, say, uh, the eight all of the, say, Wi-Fi is part of an IEEE standards group, the 802 group, which 802, because they met for the first time in February of 1980, 802. So the 11th committee in the 802 group dealt with Wi-Fi. That's why they're all the 802.11 standards. They're all run by, they're all won by the IEEE. All, all the internet standards are 
actually run by the Internet Society. They do all of the open source standards for the Internet. And the government's a stakeholder, but they actually don't run it. Now, the third thing is that all of our standards organization operate with the idea of fairness and balance. They require representation from all stakeholders. They require consensus. They require due process and transparency. So, for instance, when they had this big dispute over the audio standards, the groups came together, the stakeholders, and there were at that time about uh, eight companies in the standards organization, and they negotiated that layer three of the audio, layer three of MPEG level layer three was going to be the uh, the standard developed by, uh, by Brandenburg. And then the, um, the other two layers would be the standards developed by the other group. But they brought together and they developed a consensus over this, which is very important. Now, the result is that in the U.S., we've got an open system, a competitive system, and one that's produced standards that are widely recognized for their high quality and technical content. Now, we've got many standard development organizations like the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, the National Fire Protection Agency, the Institute for Electrical Engineers. They're, they're the ones that have the 802 group that I talked about. We've got the American Society for Testing of Materials. And all of these have international reach. We've got 600 of them. So this is a very, very robust standards organization. Under the Technical Treaty of Trade Agreement, which is part of the World Trade Treaty of 1994, the U.S. government and the governments of about 130 other nations were obliged to give preference to international standards as a basis for technical regulation. So we, we take our standards, homegrown standards, and then we interface with the international standards group to try to get consensus on the global standards. Now, what I always teach my students in technology is that if you want to know what the future looks like, look at the standards organizations of today. Because what standards are working on now are going to be fielded as equipment in probably three to five years. So if you want to see the future, look at the standards group. And that's my little message about the robust standards infrastructure of the United States. Sounds good. And based on the time, let's just keep on going, Doc. Okay. Facebook has a new vanish mode to compete with Snapchat. Now, it's, it's, uh, they first announced this as part of a big redesign of Messenger. Now, the vanish mode is what they call ephemeral messaging. That means you send a message and it disappears after it's been read. And ephemeral message is, is now available for both Facebook Messenger as well as Instagram. It'll let you send text, photos, voice messages, emoji, and stickers that disappear immediately after they're viewed. Now, the vanish mode is, is similar uh, to many, has many of the other similar features that Messenger has. It's got end-to-end -end conversation encryption. Uh, chat can only be saved on one device. And uh, once it's deleted, it's deleted everywhere. Now, Facebook introduced ephemeral messaging to compete with Snapchat because they want to attract younger smartphone users because the, the younger kids have gotten smart. They know if they post stuff on social media, it stays there forever. Yeah. It could ruin their job prospects. Yep. Mm -hmm. So they don't want it around. So if they're going to send any, anything a little bit shaky, they want it gone and gone immediately. And that's why Snapchat's so popular. And Facebook's 
you know, demographic. It's no longer the kids on Facebook. It's the parents. That's right. They're trying to get the kids back. <laughs> but is the Snapchat stuff really, really gone? Well, you, you can do a – it is possible to do a screen capture on them before right. it disappears. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you're quite saying it on the central servers, is it really gone? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, technically, they, they say it is, but you never really know. Once it's out there, it's out there. Right. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about the SpaceX crew launch on Sunday. I'm excited about this. So SpaceX is going to they're, they're going to they're going to launch their Crew One, which is now fully certified for uh, for astronauts. There'll be four astronauts aboard. Last time on their their last test run, they had two astronauts. They're going to have three American and one Japanese, and it's going to be it's going to launch on Sunday. It was supposed to launch today, but it's going to launch tomorrow, and uh, and it, it got pushed back because of of high winds down in the south. Mm-hmm. Now. It's going to follow the foot the same footsteps as the as the as the Crew One launch previously. It's going to be sitting on top of a Falcon 9 rocket. It's going to carry Michael Hopkins, Victor Glover, Shannon Walker of NASA, and Soichi Noguchi of Japan, and they'll all stay up in the space station for six months. Uh, now, if you want to watch this, you can go to the NASA live stream. That's what I do. I go to NASA Television. I got I got the NASA NASA television app. I downloaded it on an Apple TV. You can you can download the app multiple, or you can probably just go to the NASA website and you can see their live stream because then you don't have to listen to commercials and you get a lot of the back of the you know you know backroom banter as they as they do all this thing. The liftoff is scheduled for 4:27 p.m. Pacific time, so that would be seven around 7:30 Eastern time. And the coverage, uh, and but coverage on NASA TV is going to begin sooner than that. Now, probably like to, starting now, knowing how NASA TV works. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and I you'll be tuning be in when we get off the air. <laughs> now, you know, eight states, I, I was sort of looking at this thing, eight states uh, used paperless uh, voting machines in 2020, despite the security risks. Mm-hmm. You know, there were issues before when we had these. Oh, People yeah. just go to the voting machine and it's completely paperless. Maryland, there, there, there's Maryland no abandoned way to it. double check anything. No, Maryland abandoned the, the that that entire system. Yeah, I know. So so did Virginia. In Virginia, we went with paper, but then we put it into the to the counter ourselves. The, uh-huh. the scan, we scan it ourselves, but we use paper so it can, you, people can go back and double check. But in 2020, 12 percent of Americans, or around 16 million people, voted on paperless machines. Now the eight states that had it. Texas, Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, and New Jersey. Now, I'm thinking that's just a bad choice. Yeah, I agree. They should have gone. They should have paper. We need to have verifiable counts. And I'm hoping that we get rid of these paperless machines as soon as possible. Now, let's get to a quick tip of the week. Yes. Rechargeable batteries. Oh, yeah. Like if you've got if you've got uh, kids in that house that have a lot that need batteries for all their toys, you know you can spend a bundle on that. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what motivated me to get these rechargeable batteries is that someone in, the, in our house bought a salt, bought a grinder for, for pepper and a grinder for salt. I hate But it wasn't things. the normal kind. You just crank at the top. Right. It had a button. I hate and those things. I know. 
I hate them too. <laughs> so it turned out that the pepper grinder and the salt grinder each took six batteries. What? Six batteries. That's crazy. Now, I tried to get rid of these things, but I was forbidden to get rid of these things. Mm -hmm. And and so every time, and you know, then after about, you know, four weeks, they're dead. And right. my job, of course, is to maintain the salt and pepper shaker. I've got to put in another 12 batteries. Well, you know, the thing is they die at dinner time, right? Just when you want to put the pepper on your salmon, uh-uh, no battery. Exactly, exactly. So the tip of the week is to get rechargeable batteries. So there is a, you can go to Amazon. They've got Panasonic I and Loop, I, Enel Loop. I don't, that's a funny name, E-N-E-L-O-O-P, Enel Loop. Enel Loop. I think Enel Loop maybe. Enel Loop, Enel Loop, yeah. Panel Loop. And you can buy uh, a, a little kit. It comes with 10 AA batteries and four AAA batteries, and you get a charger that will charge four batteries at once. It's only $45. That's not bad. And if you need if you need extra AA, AAA batteries, which, of course, I would need for my battery-driven salt and pepper shaker, you, you can buy a pack of those rechargeable ones. Now, here's the amazing thing. These batteries will recharge 2,100 times. Wow, that's great. That's a lot so of you pepper. you think about it, that's, you're done buying batteries. Yeah. Forever. Depends on so how old you are. The Panasonic Inaloop, and and if you charge them up, they'll hold their charge for five years at seventy percent. You and I so, be finished buying batteries. Yeah, somebody so, a millennial so, might not be. So what you do is that is that you know whenever you change the battery, you just you 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 uh, you basically charge the batteries that were just discharged. As soon as they're fully charged, you put them in your. Uh, in your hot swap packet, so you can pull them out and just put them in whenever you want. And that will end all the battery charging needs that you've got. I, I think rechargeable batteries have come, along, have come a long way, and it's really time that we, uh, we move in that direction. You know what they need to now, make? They need to make what? a USB salt and pepper shaker. We could just you could dock them and plug and you know and, and just plug them in the, and they're always charged when you need them. Yeah. That's right. I, but, you know, you know, Jim, I, I just love the, the, the shakers that you actually just shake. You know, <laughs> when it gets too difficult to grind pepper myself, it, it, just, yeah, just put now, me out now, the pasture. If you grind, grind fresh pepper, that, that's a project. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, it's but, – but, Jim, I call it the budget gym. You, you can work out. Oh, that's, your pepper. that's right. You know what, Doc? I don't think we got enough time to do anything else coming up here. We're running out of time. I know. Things are, things are cruising along. Well, yeah. listen, it, um, it, we really love all the emails that, mm -hmm. uh, that you guys uh, send in. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And then, uh, you know, you can go to the Stratford University website. We've got, uh, we've got all of our programs there, uh, health sciences, nursing, culinary arts, hospitality. Of course, we've got IT information systems, software engineering. Cybersecurity and uh, and we've got business and accounting all the way up to the master's degrees. So, and when you go back to Stratford, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call one 444 0804 Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.